Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Amen. Well, I am enjoying this series. I don't know if you are. I don't even care if you are. I'm having fun. I've enjoyed the interaction that you guys have had afterwards and some of the different conversations we're having. So I know that this uh, series has been helpful to you. It's been helpful for me to try to take material that I would usually deliver in a two-credit-hour class over an entire semester and compact it into five weeks. So I want to cover where we've been so far. We have talked about in our journey with Jesus an overview of the life of Christ. What can we hope to accomplish with this? We can't hope to accomplish a complete and total understanding of the four precious gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can't do that in five Sunday nights. But I do believe that we can gain some key and important insights that aid us for a lifetime of being able to approach these books and to have a way to comprehend what's going on there and to take, it's like building a skeleton. We can build in five weeks a skeletal structure and onto that we can attach the content that we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and hopefully do that in a, in a wise way. So we talked, first of all, just kind of an overview. Then we talked about uh, the, the Christmas story and the, the childhood of Jesus. Uh, we talked about um, Jesus's great Galilean ministry, the early ministry of Jesus and some of the lessons that we can learn. We talked last week about eight important insights into the life of Christ. These would be sort of mental post-it notes for us to have with us as we're reading through the Gospels. These would actually be great things to put onto a, a three-by-five card or a bookmark or something like that and to have in your Bible, in the Gospels, just to remind you as you're reading through the Gospels what's going on. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2. I'm not going to rehearse all eight of those important insights here tonight, but I did want to illustrate with actually the passage that Pastor Ken mentioned this morning, I, was, I intended to do some of that last week and just ran out of time. You see, I've got so much material and content that when the clock hits seven, I just cut. And I'm saving all of it for the last week. So we're going to have about a three-hour last. Um, I promise we won't do that either. But I did intend to get to Mark chapter 2 because Mark chapter 2 illustrates a couple of those important insights really well for us. We see this scene where the city is so busy. We saw this last week, that busy day in the life of Christ. The city was so busy that no one could get into Jesus. The house was absolutely crammed. And so this man's four friends climb up on the roof, break open the roof, and lower their friend in. And Jesus says to them in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes that were sitting there reasoned among themselves, how can this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, their theology there was not wrong. It wasn't wrong that only God could forgive sins. You see, in what follows, Jesus doesn't correct them and say, well, actually, other people besides God can forgive sins. Ultimately, only God is in a position to forgive sins. And so, he says this to them, as they're reasoning in their hearts about this man's perceived blasphemies, he says to them, which is easier to say? This is verse 9. Which is easier to say? Is it easier to say to the paralytic, 
your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, rise up and walk? Let's answer Jesus' question. Which of those two statements is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. I could stand here, and it would be blasphemous for me to do this, but I could stand here and say, you're all absolved of your sins. That would be a very easy thing for me to say. It would be a very difficult thing to prove whether that had actually happened or not. However, with a paralytic man in front of you to say, rise up and walk, it's either going to happen or it ain't. You're either going to know that Jesus is a man whose words are true and have power, or the guy's going to lay there on that litter in front of Jesus. So it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus says this in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, speaking to the paralytic man, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So that you know that I do have the authority to forgive sins. He then says, get up and walk. Well, this illustrates two of our important insights. Jesus made two clear claims about himself. He claimed to be the Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, and he claimed to be God. In this scene here, Jesus is clearly demonstrating that he has the exact authority of God here in forgiving sins. But this also illustrates one of our other points. The purpose of the miracles that Jesus did was not just to do miracles, The miracles confirmed the messenger and his message. And so this man getting up confirms that what Jesus had to say was true. So this is a wonderful example of those, of two of the important insights that we saw last week. One of the other eight, one of the other eight insights that I want to point out to you is, we we saw this as well. The ministry of Jesus had two clear sections to it. One was public presentation, and what we saw last week in this one busy day in the life of Christ where he was doing all these amazing miracles, and he was doing that in Galilee where the population was centered, we see that public presentation where Jesus was making those assertions about himself and then demonstrating them with power, but tonight we're really going to transition into the second phase of Jesus's ministry, which is a phase of private preparation. There's a very important scene that takes place in Galilee. It's the feeding of the 5,000 or more likely the feeding of the 15 to 20,000. A massive miracle in front of thousands of people. The next day, the crowd comes to Jesus and tries to forcibly make him king. I mean, you'd vote for that guy, right? The guy that fills your bellies and makes your aches go away. They want to forcibly make him king. And then he teaches them. You can read about this. In John chapter 7, he teaches them that I am the bread of heaven. If you're going you, to have spiritual life, you're going to have to eat me. And the crowd says, this is a hard saying. Who can accept this? And it says even the disciples turned away. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to go with them? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of life. That scene is a, is a transition from the public presentation to the private preparation. 
Jesus then retreats north out of Galilee, actually into a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a primarily Gentile and Greek area, because he wants to begin to prepare his disciples for what's coming for them. And it's not that he doesn't interact with crowds at all or he stops performing all miracles or anything like that, but he enters into a phase where he is primarily preparing his disciples There's a wonderful book, if you ever want to read just a tremendous book by A.B. Bruce called The Training of the Twelve that focuses in on what was about a six-month period of time in Jesus' ministry where he is just focused in training these twelve men so that he can leave them behind to do the work. And actually, he was training eleven of them to leave them behind to do the work. And we're kind of transitioning there in our overview of the life of Christ. And we're going to see how deliberate Jesus was in training these men for the work that they had to do, the work that was ahead of them. Before we get into that, I want us to go to the book of John. I want to show you some verses that just round out some of the things that we've been saying. I hope you've got some, you've limbered up your fingers. We're going to be doing some page turning, all right? I want us to look at a series of verses that illustrate a point that we've been making on Sunday night, that Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father. Go to John chapter 5. We're going to see a series of verses here in John. And we'll jump to another book as well. John chapter 5. In verses 18 and 19, read these verses along with me. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath... But also said that God was his father, pay attention to this phrase, making himself equal with God. He was claiming to be God. That's one of our points. Jesus made clear claims to be God. That These people clearly understood that when he was claiming to be the son of God, he was claiming to be equal with God. But then listen to verse 19. This is a stunning statement from our Lord. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son, the son can do nothing of himself. The son does nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Jesus says, I do nothing of myself. I do what the father wants me to do. Look at verse 30, same chapter. Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Look at John chapter 8, and I want you to look at verse 26. John chapter 8 and verse 26. I think I might have the wrong reference there. Let me just find that. There's nothing like having the wrong reference when you're up in public. My computer made another mistake. I'm not finding it right off. But in John chapter 8, there's a verse where Jesus says, I'm doing what God wants me to do, okay? 
Jesus was completely surrendered to the will of the Father, doing exactly what the Father asked him to do. He wasn't seeking his own. He was doing what God asked him to do. Now, this is important for us to see because as we understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, it's important. Where we see distinction in role between the Father and the Son, do not mistake distinction in role as equaling Jesus being less than. This is something that confuses us in our world today. This is, what I'm about to say is really countercultural. Okay? In our world today, God, for instance, has distinguished in the home and in the church roles. God has distinguished the role for the man to be the head of the home, and he has distinguished for men to be the head of the church. And that's not popular culturally. And some people really wrestle because God says that the man is to be the head of the home, that therefore the woman is less than the man. But we see actually pictured for us in the Trinity, the relationship of the father to the son, that the son's submission to the father does not mean that he is less than. The son has the exact same quality, essence, nature, and value as the father. And this is true for a home. Just because God distinguishes roles doesn't mean that the wife is less than the man because the man is given headship. In fact, if you know my family, you know for sure that the woman is not less than, okay? And my children don't run my house, but my children are not less than I am in the eyes of God. Who in my family has more or less value? In God's sight, we are all equal. And yet there's a distinction in role. We see this pictured here in, the, in Jesus. He was submitted to the will of the Father. But that doesn't mean he was less than. In fact, in these passages where sometimes he's saying, I can do nothing of myself, John chapter 8 is a famous place. Jesus says, I'm surrendered to the will of the Father. And yet in this passage, he makes a clear claim to be exactly what God is. In John chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying, that he was making himself equal with God. In fact, they tried to kill him. Mark chapter 14, verses 35 and 36. Look at this passage. This is, I think, the quintessential moment in the life of Christ in, in, in relationship to his submission to the will of the Father. And I, I know I've got these verses right, so you can turn there with some confidence, okay? Mark chapter 14, verses 35 and 36. And he went a little further. This is on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, think about this. Jesus is actually praying here that if it were possible, that God would have another path for him. He pleads to the Father. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He actually prays to the Father, take this cup away from me. And what he means by this cup is the journey that he's about to take to the cross. Take this away from me. But then this last phrase there in verse 36, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. We are never more like Jesus than when we are turning to the Father and saying, Father, not my will, 
but your will be done. Jesus puts on display for us what it means to be the perfect human, to be the perfect man. God created us for him, for a relationship with him. And that isn't a relationship where we call the shots. That's a relationship where God is in charge of our lives. And Jesus pictures here for us in the Garden of Gethsemane perfect humanity. I want you to see these verses that are actually talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews is talking about that same scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And listen to how he describes the Son and his relationship to the Father here in these verses. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus crying out with prayers, supplications, vehement cries, and tears to his Father. Look at verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And then verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey. Now, those statements there that Jesus learned obedience, that he perfected his sacrifice, what does that mean? That suggests for us that even in his sinlessness as a man, Jesus Christ grew in his relationship with God. This is what Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 tells us, that he grew in favor with God. He actually learned and in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't accomplish the atonement. The atonement required the shedding of blood on the cross. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, this was this moment where he says, Father, whatever you want for me, that is what I will do. Whatever you ask of me, that is what I will do. Jesus Christ was utterly submitted to the will of the Father. And then I want to show you another component that's important to the life of Christ not only was he submitted to the will of the Father, but he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Take your fingers, okay, and let's open up to the book of Luke. Luke emphasizes in particular the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about why would Luke in particular highlight the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, but what else does he write? He, write, he writes Acts. And I know our title in our Bible says Acts of the Apostles, but I think there's actually a better title for that book. We could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. You see, one of the things that Luke was doing, he was writing both Luke and Acts, and he wanted to show the continuity between the life and ministry of Jesus and then the life and ministry of the Apostles of Jesus. And one of the threads that runs through Luke and goes right into the book of Acts is the, the thread of the work of, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see this in Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. Jesus Christ comes up out of the Jordan River. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 3 and verse 22, this is in that baptism scene. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. By the way, that was a messianic sign as well. 
When you go back to the Old Testament and you look in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel anointed David, the first of that messianic line, we're told that the Spirit of God was mightily upon David. So when the Spirit comes upon Jesus here in his baptism, it's a sign that this is indeed the one that God has sent to deliver his people. But look in chapter 4 of Luke. We'll see this thread that runs through this. In Luke chapter 4, look at verse 1. Jesus comes up out of the baptism waters. It says this, Luke 4 verse 1, Then Jesus being filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit is active in his life, filling him and leading him. Then look at verse 14. After the temptation scene, Okay, we made this point last week, but I'll make it again here. Please remember that Jesus succeeded in fending off Satan's temptations, not because he was God. Okay, it's true that God can't sin, but that's not why Jesus didn't sin in that scene. Jesus, in his humanity, submitted to the will of the Father and being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit and using the sword of the Spirit resisted those temptations. And I made that point last week. It's an important point because it shows us that Jesus faced temptations with the same resources that we have to face temptations. We have the Spirit. We have the sword of the Spirit. We're to rely on those tools. But after that temptation scene, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He goes in the power of the Spirit. And then we see in verse 18, that Jesus steps into his hometown synagogue and he reads the prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do the things that are detailed in verse 18, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus, through this prophecy, makes it clear that the work that he's going to do is going to be one that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has anointed me to do these things. So Jesus did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. This one is just so encouraging to me. Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Even Jesus' life of worship was one that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Last week we concluded by looking at Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. Early in the morning before the sun had risen, Jesus departed into a desert place and there prayed. Jesus' life and his personal walk with God, with the Father, was one that was enabled by the Holy Spirit. This encourages me. Because Jesus was setting the example of the perfect human. Someone who relied on the Holy Spirit. And even his worship of God was empowered by the Spirit. What about your private time with God? I hope your private time with God is not just three chapters and a check mark. We can get into sort of a rote walk with God. But this was private worship. 
Is your time with God, Holy Spirit-empowered worship? That's how Jesus worshiped. It's a wonderful example for us. Then look at Luke chapter 12 and verse 10. Again, I'm trying to just demonstrate to you from Scripture that Jesus did the mighty works that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 12 and verse 10 says this, if anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is a famous passage called the unpardonable sin. You can read parallel passages to this. And when we read those parallel passages, we find out that here's what was happening. The religious leaders were watching the miracles that Jesus was doing. And they said, he is doing those miracles by the power of Beelzebub. They attributed the miracles of Jesus to the power of Satan. And Jesus, in response to that, says, you have not blasphemed me, you have blasphemed who? Okay, so if they're saying you're doing those things by the power of Satan, and Jesus says, you just blasphemed the Holy Spirit, then what is the implication? Jesus was saying, you can't say that because I didn't do that stuff by the power of of Beelzebub. Those miracles are being done by the power of the Holy Spirit, you see? So Jesus himself in that exchange testifies of the fact that the miracles that he was doing were being done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go to Acts chapter 2, same author, different book, okay? This is, we're in Luke part 2 now, okay? This is on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has empowered Peter. And he's standing on the Temple Mount. And he's just letting it go, all right? And listen to how Peter describes the ministry of Jesus. Luke chapter 2 and verse 22 in this Holy Spirit-inspired preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. I just want to point out there, Peter says that God did these wonderful works and signs through Jesus. He attributes the power of those miracles to God. Now, what does that add up to for us? And I want to make this statement, and I want you to, this is a statement I'd like you to chew on a little, okay? I want to say it to you this way. Jesus accomplished the mission that God had given him because first he surrendered his will to the will of the Father. And then secondly, he He was empowered and he was dependent on the Holy Spirit. And I think in those two things, in surrendering his will to the will of the Father and saying, not my will but yours be done, and then in allowing the Holy Spirit to enable him and empower him by being dependent on the Holy Spirit, I think in those two things, he sets the model and the example for us. I want you to think about the apostles that, were, that Luke's going to write about in the book of Acts. How did they accomplish the mission that they had of taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth? 
In our ABF this morning, we were talking about Paul and his missionary desire to get to Spain. I mean, in, in Paul's lifetime, he was already targeting Spain. For Paul, that was the uttermost parts of the earth at that time. And Paul was already getting there. How did they, in one generation, get the gospel all across the Mediterranean world and beyond? It was because they were men who imperfectly, so they don't do it flawlessly like Jesus, but they were men who surrendered their will to the will of the Father, and then they depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. And my friends, the reason I want us to get this is that I believe that that is the lesson, this is one of the central lessons we need to take from the life of Christ. He fulfilled his mission because he said, Father, whatever you want of me, that is what I want, and I will depend on your spirits. And he accomplished his mission. Now, his mission was unique. No one in human history ever had the mission that Jesus had. His mission was to reveal that he was the Messiah and also to reveal that he was God and then to die on the cross as the final atoning payment for all sin. So you're not going to do the same things that Jesus does. You don't have the same mission that Jesus had. But that principle is the same, my friends. If in your heart you say, I want to do what God wants me to do with my life, and I know many, many, many of you in this room well enough to know that I, that is your heart. I know that that is a heart that typifies Tri-City Baptist Church and its members. We are a group of people that by and large, right, we know that we struggle and we know we have bad days and bad moments, but by and large, we are a church that's typified by this attitude. God, I want you to do what you want me to do with my life. Yes, we struggle with it. But most of us in the end say, God, I want your will. Then we need to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, God will accomplish through us, and because of the dispensation we're in, through our ministry in the church, the mission that he has for us. God has something all of us, for all of us to do for him. And there is no way to get that done except to say, Father, not your will, not my will, excuse me, but yours be done. And then to live a life of submission to the power of the Holy Spirit, looking to his strength to accomplish what God has given us to do. And Jesus demonstrates that for us. Okay, that was all stuff I cut last week because I ran out of time. So here we go. Lesson four, adventures in missing the point the Life and Times of the Disciples. I have a book that I'm writing called Adventures in Missing the Point, The Life and Times of the Disciples. It will be out Christmas of 2053 is about <laughs> where we're targeting that release. And get it for your great-grandkids. We're going to turn our attention now to the Gospel of Mark. So you can find your way to Mark chapter 8. Mark is a fascinating gospel. Don't tell Luke, John, or Matthew, but Mark's my favorite, okay? You're not supposed to have favorites, but I love the gospel of Mark. Mark was Peter's sermon about the life of Christ. We actually have some historical record of that, some evidence that this was Peter's sermon. Can you imagine being the Apostle Peter traveling around the church in the first century? Can you imagine when you showed up someplace what they wanted to hear from you? 
You know, Peter shows up and he says, guys, I've, I've got a really great series I've been working on from the book of Ecclesiastes. And they're like, oh, Peter, that sounds great. Um, we we're kind of hoping you'd just tell us what it was like to live with Jesus. <laughs> He's like, okay, I'll do that. No, I think with joy, Peter regaled over and over and over again the story of Jesus. In fact, he had done that so many times that he had developed it into a really clear, I think, sermonic structure. I have to believe that I wrote a long paper about that in seminary, okay? So I'm committed to that proposition. And one of the clear patterns that you see in John is he has these trilogies. John, or excuse me, Mark. Mark had these trilogies. Mark loved sets of three. And there's a bunch of them. But one of the sets of three is this interaction that Jesus and the disciples have in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. So that's where the three are. And there's this cycle where in step one, Jesus teaches about his upcoming death. We're going to see the first of those in Mark 8. Jesus teaches about his upcoming death. And then I reach deep into my theological jargon to come up with this statement. Uh, The disciples say something dumb. And then Jesus teaches an important lesson about discipleship. So these conversations are happening in that time of private preparation, that second phase. And one of the insights I gave you last week is that the disciples were confused about Jesus's true purpose and and, and his message about going to the cross right till the very end. And we are going to see that very, very clearly here as we look at this trilogy. So each one of these three has three parts to it. So we have a trilogy of trilogies here. Jesus teaches about his death. The disciples say something dumb, and Jesus teaches an important lesson about discipleship. And I just love that this is coming from Peter. Peter who suffered with open mouth, insert foot disease, right? And Peter is essentially telling on himself. When Peter was going around and preaching about his life and walk with Jesus, he didn't sugarcoat anything. He just owned up and said, guys, I know you look at us now and the things that we're doing, but you have to understand, we were knuckleheads. We missed it. Jesus was right there teaching us, and we didn't get it. So let's look at these trilogies here, these three sets of three. We see the first one in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Just read this verse with me, and we'll see this repeat in 9 and 10 as well. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He teaches them he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer and die. Step two, Peter says something dumb. Peter rebukes Jesus. That's your sign, by the way. If you ever find yourself rebuking Jesus, you made a mistake somewhere. Peter rebuked him. Jesus, we have, we got a focus group together and we did a little test on the dying Messiah. That messaging, that was, that was not popular with the crowd. I have a couple times been asked to be part of a political focus group. I'm on some list. And I usually get $100 gift cards at Amazon, so I sign up. And I have signed a non-disclosure agreement uh, for most of these. But the last one I went to, it was a, they were showing political ads for a particular candidate. I can't tell you which candidate. 
However, I can tell you that they had these dials and you could turn them up if you liked it or you could turn it down if you didn't like it. And I had it set on zero the whole time. Okay. <laughs> but I can't tell you which candidate that was for. Hey, we focused, we, we tested this and suffering and dying Messiah messaging not playing well in Peoria. I mean, Jesus says this to him, and what kind of faith does Peter have? He says, you can see Peter's mentality. They really thought that they were going somewhere with Jesus where they would experience greatness. Another sign that you're off target is when Jesus says something like this to you, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Oops. And then if you have never been moved by these words, I think your emotional, whatever inside of you moves you is broken. Could we just read? I'm just going to let Jesus' words speak for themselves. Whoever desires to, to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man gain in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says that if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to be willing to have a commitment to me that would follow me even to the point of death. I, I've heard some some less than good preaching on this passage someday that describes taking up your cross as bearing under the daily burdens of life. My friends, can I just say this to you clearly? We sometimes use that phrase, well, I'm just bearing up under my cross. And I'm not trying to diminish daily struggles and things that we go through, but that's not what Jesus means here. If you in that day saw someone bearing a cross, where were they going? They were going to the place of crucifixion. And Peter, I don't care what your, your focus group says. You don't understand. Being my disciple means to go to a cross. Peter didn't get it. Not in chapter 8. But Peter would get it. The witness of history is that Peter did indeed walk to a place of crucifixion because of his faithful service as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I remember being a young parent and naively thinking that the way you taught your kids something was this. You sat them down and you told them something and then they got it. <laughs> well, that didn't work for the disciples. <laughs> Chapter 9. Jesus teaches about his death. You can read it for yourself. Chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. They immediately follow that conversation with arguing with who will be greatest in the kingdom. Look at this because it's funny. It's comical. Verses 33 and 34. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, Hey, uh, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? I call these the backseat of the minivan conversations. <laughs> hey, guys, what were you talking about in the backseat of the minivan? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. <laughs> oh, don't tell Jesus that. And Jesus says, 
that his disciples don't race to the front of the line, his disciples race to the back of the line. They seek to become the servants of all and are even willing to receive children. Now, in our culture today, we serve children like they're goddess, gods and goddesses, okay? But in that culture, that was not what you did with children. And so this was a striking statement. You have to receive even children. Greatness in my kingdom means that children are, are received and you serve even the lowliest this is what it means to be the disciple of Jesus. Well, certainly they got it after the second time, except they didn't. And so Jesus teaches again in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things. That he's going to be mocked, scourged, spit on. He's going to be killed on the third day. He's going to rise again. This is the third time he's taught the exact same content. And James and John make an ignorant request. By the way, you always know that it's going to go badly when your children come to you and they say, hey, dad, whatever we want you to do for us, just say yes. <laughs> Anytime that happens, you got to have the no super ready, handy, okay? And this is what James and John say, hey, whatever we ask of you, just do it, okay? Well, what do you want? And I want you to see in verse 37, think about how little they have understood about what Jesus has said. Jesus, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Have they been paying attention to where Jesus is going? Because Jesus was going somewhere, and when he got there, there was going to be someone on his left and someone on his right. Right here in the Gospel of Mark, we have our King Jesus hanging on the cross. The journey with Jesus at this point is not bringing greatness to the people on his left and right, but you can read it for yourself in verse 15, there, in, in chapter 15, there was someone on his left and someone on his right, but those people were fellow, fellow people being crucified. I mean, James and John have no idea what they're asking for. It was an ignorant request, a willfully ignorant request, driven by a heart that desired greatness and a heart that wasn't paying attention. Jesus says, you're not ready. You have no idea what you asked for. And then in what I think is probably the, the, the key summary verse of the theme and the purpose of the gospel of Mark, Jesus delivers this line, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're going to be my disciple, you should not expect to be treated better than I am. In another place, Jesus says, should the servants expect better treatment than the master? As you go out, are you going to be willing to lay your life down for the ransom of many? And as the book of Mark was being written, as Peter was preaching the, the content that would be written down in the book of Mark, Peter and the other disciples were literally doing this. And so if you took all of those messages of discipleship in 8, 9, and 10, and you combine them together, I think it would come to something like this. The true disciple of Jesus is one who is willing to lay down his own life so that others would have their lives ransomed 
by Jesus. I like what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I am filling up what is left behind of the sufferings of Christ. He says this in the book of Colossians. I am filling up what is left behind of the sufferings of Christ. He says, I glory in my suffering because when I suffer for the sake of the gospel, I am suffering for the purpose for which Christ suffered on the cross. And the true disciple of Jesus says, Jesus, you suffered for me. You suffered so that others could know and have their lives ransomed, and I am willing to suffer even to the point of death for the purpose for which you died on the cross. So seldomly in American Christianity are we asked to die for the sake of our Savior. And I don't know if that'll ever happen to you. I don't know if there'll ever be a time when you will either have to choose between life or Jesus, between life and being faithful, between life and the gospel. It's unlikely, honestly, that any of us in this room would ever face that moment. But what would you do if you were there that day? Can I leave you with this penetrating question? What would you do if it was your life or Jesus? What would you do? And let me just say this to you. If you are not living for Jesus every day, there's no chance that you would die for him someday. And the true disciple of Jesus, we don't know what we would do in that day if we had the gun to our head and we were challenged to to deny Christ. We don't know what we would do, but I will tell you this, that if we are not living for Jesus every day, we will not die for him if that day ever came. The book of Mark challenges us to think about our walk in discipleship. The disciples didn't get it. To be candid with you, they didn't get it until Jesus came back out of the grave. But boy, did they get it. And these men went out and they died for Jesus. And they changed the world. And this is what it means to be the true disciple of Jesus. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord.